grab a seat. If you've got your Bibles, do me a courtesy. Uh, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we will be in verses 16 through to 20. And if you don't happen to have your Bibles, it will be on the screen. Move this out of the way so I don't run into it on accident. That is a very real possibility for me. So I wonder if you've had a similar experience to the one that I've had with optical illusions, specifically the pictures that you can see a couple different things in. Now, I realize that some people might not be familiar with these pictures. Probably the most famous of them, when you initially look at it, it looks like a wine glass or like a goblet. It looks very formal, like something like a Viking king would hold up and try and Uh, But it's just black and white shapes that form this. And if you look at it long enough, then something sort of switches in your brain. And you can see that it's not just a goblet, but it might actually be these two men facing one another. Is everybody familiar with what I'm talking about? Okay, so in in my life, it takes me a long time to see the image within these images. Like I, I stared at that picture for probably 20 minutes before I saw anything other than a cup. Uh, and people traced the men's faces for me, and I just didn't see it. I said, no, you're tracing the cup, you fool. Uh, but, but that's all I saw was the cup. But there comes a point with all of these sort of optical illusion pictures where um, the levee breaks, so to speak, uh, where sort of the cracks run the length of the dam and everything bursts. And all of a sudden, I can see the picture behind the picture. And once that happens, it's almost impossible for me to unsee it. So I can't go back to seeing the cup anymore. All I see is the people's faces. This happens not just with optical illusions. Uh, There's a phrase for a similar process that takes place within the realm of like scientific inquiry. It's called a paradigm shift. And the general account of how a paradigm shift occurs is when enough data and evidence accumulates in favor of one particular theory, then people's opinions shift and the perspective has to shift. Now, some philosophers of science that would disagree with that being the structure of paradigm shifts, and that's neither here nor there. Uh, But it's not just in optical illusions. It's not just in uh, scientific inquiry. Uh, I think you and I have probably experienced this in our own lives as well. Uh, I would venture to say that for all of us, there have been events or people who have stepped in or have occurred to us, and something has happened through that person or through that event Uh, that we just can't undo. Uh, We can't go back to being the person that we were before we experienced those experiences or those people. You can't unsee it. Now, now sometimes these are positive experiences. Maybe that person steps into your life, and that's the person that you end up marrying and you spend the rest of your life with, and you can't imagine yourself before Susie or Timmy. This paradigm shift occurs. I'm just picking the most generic human being names I can come up with. But this shift occurs, and you just can't even, you can't even measure your life except in two halves, before you knew them and after. Uh, or, or positively, um, maybe you step into a new phase in your life. You move to a new city. Uh, you finish college and begin a career that you're super excited about, and you begin to measure your life in two halves. It's before I stepped into this experience and after. But this sort of shift in our perspective, it can happen in negative things, too both in relationships and experiences. Uh, That person that you thought would be the one doesn't end up being the one. And the damage that is done in that experience, it it can't be undone, at least not fully. You never really feel like you can go back to being who you were 
before that wound was inflicted. Or perhaps there's a loss that you experience, a, a loved one, a friendship, a relative, and you can't go back, never fully, never completely, you can't go back to who you were before you experienced it. Your life is divided into halves. You experience uh, what the great theologian Bon Iver describes in his masterful work regarding stacks where he says everything that happens is from now on. You experience something and everything that comes is from that moment on and everything is measured in light of that experience. So Paul has had such an experience. It happened on the road to Damascus and probably finished up within the following months as he sorted out what he experienced when he encountered the risen Christ. And this experience, this conclusion that he comes to results in a fundamental paradigm shift in the way he relates to the world. It changes the way that he relates to people. It changes the, relate, the way that he relates to Christians. It changes the way that he relates to systems of power. Everything changes. Everything hinges. His life is divided into two halves. He describes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. He says, We have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul comes to this conclusion, that the death of Jesus was not just an accident of history. It wasn't just the tragic outworking of the cruelty of the Roman Empire. It was something more than that. It was a substitution. It was one man standing in the place of his people and dying on their behalf. And when Paul concluded this, when he came to this understanding that Jesus' death was not a mere tragedy or an accident of history, but it was a substitution. And when he concluded that Jesus didn't just die as a substitution, but he died so that the people he died for would no longer live for themselves, but they would live for him. When Paul came to that conclusion, everything changed. And he couldn't go back to living the way that he lived before. He couldn't unsee what he had seen, if you will. And so we come to our text for the day, chapter 5, verse 16. And he says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So the shift occurs. Paul comes to a conclusion about who Christ is and what his death means and, and the purpose of his resurrection. And everything that happens is from then on. So he begins our text by saying, from now on. And he says, in light of what he's concluded about Jesus, he regards no one according to the flesh. Now, that's not a phrase that we use in our day and age. If somebody asks you, what do you think of Susie? I, I regard her according to the flesh. People would think strange things about you if you said that. Um, <laughs> Susie might file a restraining order against you if you said that. 
Rightfully so, I would support Susie's decision in that. Uh, So other translations of the Bible, we use the ESV, which I think is probably one of the better of the modern ones. Uh, But it is literal. It is word for word. This is what the Greek actually says. Um, But the phrase that Paul is using uh, doesn't necessarily come across if you translate it literally. When Paul says and talks about regarding someone according to the flesh, he's talking about making judgment calls about people based on worldly standards. So if you have an NIV Bible, it says we regard no one by worldly standards because that's what Paul is saying when he talks about regarding people according to the flesh. He says, from now on, in light of what we've concluded about Christ, we don't view people by worldly standards anymore. And then he has this sort of aside. He says, although we once viewed Christ by worldly standards or according to the flesh. Now, whether you're a Christian or not in this room, either now or at one point, you, along with Paul, regarded Christ by worldly standards. You viewed him according to the flesh. What Paul means when he says this is that in the early part of Paul's life, he was convinced that Jesus was insane, that he was a heretic, that he was leading the Jewish nation astray, possibly in league with Satan, and he deserved every single bit of that crucifixion that he wound up with. That was Paul's opinion of Jesus, but something changed. Now, most people don't say things like that in our day and age, but, but regarding Christ according to the flesh or having a worldly perspective of Jesus in our day and age is a little bit more, um, it's a little bit less confrontational. We say things like, I think Jesus was a good man. He was a great moral teacher. One of the great tragedies of history that Jesus wound up on the wrong side of the Roman Empire. Uh, what, what a terrible thing it was that this great moral teacher ended up on a Roman cross. But if you're a Christian in this room, that paradigm shift, that from now on, that has happened for you. That that is no longer how you view Christ. Because you realize that 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 expression of who Jesus is, that description of Jesus is insufficient to the testimony of Scripture. You've moved from good man to Lord. You've moved from tragic case in history to crucified, risen, reigning, and returning king. You regard him according to the flesh no longer. But I wonder, and I think all of us, if you're a Christian in here, you would say, yes, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is God, Jesus is risen and reigning and returning. We would all say that as Christians, if indeed, indeed you count yourself as a Christian. But I wonder if this other shift, this sort of um, ripple effect of that first shift that Paul describes here, I wonder if that's happened for you. Because Paul says he comes to that opinion about Christ, and it changes the way that he views people. I think all of us, or at least anyone who says they're a Christian, would say, yes, I believe that about Christ. But has it changed the way that you view everybody else? Because that's the point that Paul is making. He says, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Although we once thought that about Christ, we don't think that any longer. And I just have to ask, as as Christians in this room, has what you believe about Jesus affected the way that you interact with other people? Because if it hasn't, then you have not let the cross do its full work in your life. You have not allowed the gospel into the aspects of your life that it is meant to affect and alter and change and transform. Because when we come to these convictions about Christ, by his spirit, that naturally changes the way that we interact with people who are made in his image. When we come to these convictions about Christ, we no longer view people as resources to be consumed. 
I have a, a relative who works in the movie industry. He's a stuntman. And one of the things that he told me as I was talking with him about his job is how frustrated he is by the corporate ladder system within the movie industry. He said, man, I don't actually know if people are my friends or if they're my friends because they know that in being my friends, they might get a better job. And the minute that I cease to be beneficial to them in getting a better job, I'm not their friend anymore. That perspective that people are something to be consumed, that they're rungs on your corporate ladder as you climb your way to better grades or greater success or higher corporate superstardom. If you have concluded that one has died for all, you can't function under that paradigm anymore. Because people are not resources to be consumed or rungs in a ladder. They are image bearers of God that Jesus offered his life on behalf of. If you've concluded this about Jesus, that has to change about the way that you relate to people. In the same way, even the most obnoxious, annoying person in, in the seat next to you in class or in the cubicle next to you at work, they, they are no longer um, burdens to be endured, but they become people and sinners in need of salvation. That has to shift. If you've concluded this about Christ, everything that happens is from now on. And your perspective on people made in God's image must change, especially so for other Christians. Man, have we as a generation ever been more guilty in the history of the church for judging Christians by the way that they look? How many of us, and I include myself at times in this, how many of us have picked the churches we go to because there's lots of people with tattoos and cool dress? How many of us have picked our churches because people uh, look cool, dress cool, know the right craft beers, listen to the right bands, hang out on the right side of town? Man, I see it. And, and I, don't, I don't mean to sound rude or mean-spirited, but what that is symptomatic of is what Paul says he jettisoned when he came to know Christ, regarding people from a worldly perspective as though their worth in the eyes of God is dependent on how fashionable they are. Or how hip to the jive they are. Wow, I sound like an old guy when I say that. Strike that from my vocabulary. But how, how often are we guilty? We judge people by how much they make, what they wear, whether they're cool, whether their lives are Instagrammable and will look good as we craft our perfect image on social media. Man, how dare we judge our brothers and sisters like that? How dare we regard them according to the flesh if what we say about the Son of God is true? C.S. Lewis, um, in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, which was written uh, specifically about first or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, he describes how our interactions with one another might be different if we had a bit more of an eternal perspective on people. Uh, he talks about how we would relate to one another differently if we considered what, what the end goal of each brother and sister in Christ is in the new heavens and the new earth. And he describes it in this way. He says, the dullest and the most uninteresting person you could talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. He goes on, he says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilizations, these things are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. It is immortals whom with which we joke, work, marry, snub, and exploit. 
may we never regard people according to the flesh or worldly standards. Paul goes on in verse 17. And he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And the way that I see it, there's probably two different categories of Christian in this room. And you need to hear the truth of this text worked out in two different ways, given which category you fall into. So the first category of Christian is, is likely somebody who is just beaten down. You are exhausted and you are weary. You have been struggling against the same sins for years and have yet to have victory over it. And you're tired. Man, I get that. I have felt that way many, many, many times in my life. And perhaps also some people in this category You feel as though the titles that you were given and the sins that you were entangled with before you knew Christ, you feel as though they loom over you like a mountain waiting to fall on your head. Whether it's addicts or porn purveyor or drunkard or person who's cheated on a boyfriend or a girlfriend or or liar or gossip, whatever it is, you feel as though those titles follow you around and are chained to you as weights around your feet. And for those who find themselves in that category tonight, I say, hear the word of the Lord. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. You are not the sum total of your failures. You are the very righteousness of God by the work of the Son of God. Hear that well. But there's likely a second category of Christian here. And, and I've found myself in this category, so I'm sympathetic to the both of you. And the second category of Christian, if you were sitting in one of our life groups, which you should totally attend on Mondays through Wednesdays, there's my spiel. If you were sitting in one of our life groups and somebody were to ask, you know, what's going on? You would say, I'm really struggling with X, Y, and Z. And there might be, there might be some honesty about what X, Y, and Z are, but you use that word struggle only because it makes you sound better. You say that you struggle with sin, but you have not struggled in years. There's no struggle against sin. There's no resistance of temptation. You fling yourself happily into it, and you call it a struggle so that it doesn't sound as bad as it really is. I've been guilty of it. So hear me when I say that I've been here before. I've been in this category. And I think that you and I, when we find ourselves here stuck in sin, not feeling conviction, not willing to repent. We need to hear this text and the truth of it worked out differently in our lives. Uh, Mark Saunders, who is the senior pastor here at Bay Life, you may know him from the big stage that stands behind me at Big Church. I'm like 26 and I can still call this Big Church. Um, I'm, I'm probably going to butcher this story, but he's, he's said several times that he's got this sort of family saying, and Cooper, you can correct me after service if I'm wrong. What's the Saunders, Saunders motto? Love to love and protect. Uh, and I've heard Mark say several times, and I've heard other people who have family mottos like that, that when their kids are in conflict with one another, when they're fighting, when they're, when they're bitter, when they're mad at one another, that they'll bring their kids together and say, what's our family motto? In the Saunders case, love and protect. Are you Saunders? Yes. Are you loving and protecting? No. Act like Saunders, because that's what you are. And I think that for those of us who, who find ourselves in this second category, I'm not questioning whether or not you're a Christian. I, I don't know. 
But you need to hear the word of the Lord just as much as the first category. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. That's who you are. Act like it. Live up to the name which you bear. Live a life in keeping with the the standards of the gospel. You are a new creation. It's about time that you act like it and that you walk in repentance. So Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And he goes on. And he says, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God, well, I lost my point. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And in this passage, you're going to see that word reconciliation used a whole heck of a lot. Um, it's, a, it's a term that you need to know, especially if you've been walking with God for five, six, seven years, and you still don't know what that word means. Let's fill that gap in your discipleship, because that's a really important term. So when we talk about reconciliation, really what is assumed behind that word is two parties that are in conflict with one another. Uh, you might have heard the phrase lately, racial reconciliation. It seems to me very obvious that there is tension racially within our nation. And that that tension needs to be resolved. And and so when we talk about racial reconciliation, we're talking about bringing people who are at odds with one another, uh, again, back into friendship, into fellowship, into unity, into camaraderie. So when the Bible talks about reconciliation, it is talking about the animosity that exists between God and man. And that stands at the backdrop. The Bible assumes that man and God are not walking in harmony with one another. That there is conflict. That we do not live as we ought to. And the Bible not only assumes it, but explicitly states it. It refers to us outside of Christ as enemies of God because our sin is not simply uh, a a violation of the public good or or, uh, an act of transgression against the social order. It is an act of treason in the Bible. It is an act of warfare against the author of goodness itself when we violate the commandments of God. And so the Bible recognizes that there exists between God and man conflict. And whose fault is that? It's ours. Every time we sin, we declare war against the Almighty. And so when the Bible talks about reconciliation, what it is talking about is that conflict between God and man being absolved. It's talking about that animosity that exists between God and man being dissolved and us being reunited into friendship and fellowship and communion and sonship. This is the good news of the gospel. That we who were far off have been brought close. But, but pay attention to how Paul says this. We have been reconciled. All this is from God. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What is the source of this bringing together of two parties that were at war. God and man. It's God. Who takes the first step in Resolving this tension, it's God. What is the source of reconciliation? 
beginning to end, it is God. And, and I think that these five words, four or five words, I count them when I'm done. I should have counted them before the sermon. These words dissolve this false understanding that I think exists in our minds, especially if you grew up in the church, because I think that when we consider salvation, all of us are tended to think of it as some sort of a cosmic old yeller situation, where humanity is this rabid dog, and God the Father, mean old God the Father, wants to put us down, and Jesus is like, no, don't kill my dog, and throws himself over us last minute. And we may, we, ne- we may never articulate it that way, but I think that that's an assumption that stands behind the way that we talk about salvation. But look at the source of reconciliation. All of it is from God. He takes the first step and the last step, beginning to end. Jesus didn't jump out of heaven against the Father's will. The Father sends, the Son goes willingly, and the Spirit empowers him to bring what was discordant back into harmony. That is the good news of the gospel. That right standing with God, friendship with God, fellowship with God, it is possible, not on your own merits, not because you're awesome, not because you're great, not because you do lots of nice things, but because God took the first step. All of this is from God. God. And notice how it is accomplished. It is accomplished through Christ. And this doesn't preach well in the world in which we live. Christianity is an exclusive religion. This, this reconciling of man and God, it happens through Christ. Jesus is the intersection of these two things. And apart from Jesus, it is not possible. But God takes that step to reconcile his enemies. And, and he, hear this. What other king would at such great cost to himself step down and save the very people who have set their face against him? That is astounding to me. But God reconciles. And he gives to us this ministry called the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So, if you're wondering, this stands behind every single missional thing that we do as a church and as a ministry. If you want to know why it is we're going to Scotland, it's because God has made reconciliation possible and he has called us to go and proclaim it. If you want to know why at the end of all of our services for the last six months, I've somehow prayed the Great Commission over all of us, it's because God has made reconciliation possible and he has asked us to go and preach and proclaim it. Be reconciled, not by your works but by God's grace in the work of Christ. And so we go, knowing and celebrating and rejoicing the fact that God and man who were once at odds have been brought back together in the person and the work of Jesus and that for those in Christ, the old is gone, the new has come. We move now into uh, a period of taking communion, the Lord's Supper.
And you may notice that whenever we spend time around the communion table, there's a couple things I say every single week, and it's not just because I can't come up with anything else to say. Every once in a while, I'll come up with something else to say. But I mentioned, if you are a Christian, if you're in right standing with your church, if you're walking in repentance, and if you're not at odds with other people in this room or other Christians, then we would invite you to take communion. And, and there's, there's a, something standing behind that. The reality is that if you're not a Christian, that reconciliation has not yet been experienced. Um, the reality is that if you are at odds with a brother or sister, especially in this room, if God has reconciled us to himself and you're not reconciled to one another, that's a problem. Because every time we come to the Lord's table, we are celebrating and reminding ourselves that we who were far off have been brought close by the work of Jesus. So the next few minutes are yours. If you have conflict with a brother or sister, be reconciled. Uh, If you don't yet know the Lord, be reconciled. And we would encourage you to take some time, examine yourself, repent, and then you can come up and take communion in the next few minutes.